2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to read the first seven verses this morning. Second uh, uh, Samuel chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David inquired of the Lord. And the Lord answered, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house, because he killed the Gibeonites. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. The children of Israel had sworn protection to them, but Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. Therefore David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you, and with what shall I make atonement, that you may bless the inheritance of the Lord? And the Gibeonites said to him, We will have no silver or gold from Saul or from his house, nor shall you kill any man in Israel for us. So he said, Whatever you say, I will do for you. Then they answered the king, As for the man who consumed us and plotted against us, that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the territories of Israel, let seven men of his descendants be delivered to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord chose. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of the Lord's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. First Baptist Church of Greg Abel's, the grass withers. Flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures. Let's go to the Lord and thank Him for His word. Gracious Father, would you help us to remember what an honor and privilege it is to gather here together in your presence as your children, bought with the precious blood of your Son, Jesus. To come before you knowing that you receive us and that you are pleased to give, give us even every spiritual blessing. Father, we ask for your help now. Would you give us attentive minds, sensitive hearts, help us to hear with the ears of faith, help us to respond with a renewed mind with greater faith and a greater love for your Son, Jesus, that you, your Son, and your Spirit might be glorified as we walk in faithfulness. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, if you were like me this week... Then when you heard this text for the first time read, your thoughts were, huh? (laughs) Or maybe, what? Um, And the temptation would be to say, well, I'm checking out of this one. I don't know how he's going to spin this one. Um, And yet, this is very much the Word of God, isn't it? And we've got some work to do. So I hope you drank some coffee this morning. Because we're going to introduce some theological concepts and even theological Words, vocabulary that is going to be tremendously helpful for you to understand uh, this great salvation that we study. So you ready for this? All right, if you had the reading this week, um, we had really good discussion about that. Uh, Reach out next week for that. I'll plan on getting you some uh, as well. Um, I've entitled the sermon From Feast to Famine. And before I actually jump into the text itself, I've got to orientate the map to us a little bit. And I'm doing that. Partly so you can see why I entitled this sermon from feast to famine. The famine part's obvious, right? We read it in the scripture. There was a famine. But where do I get the feast from? Well, we've got to go back to where we were a couple weeks ago to our last list of names. If you're not familiar with the 
structure of 2 Samuel, it's broken up into these four parts and then this epilogue that we just began today. Chapter 21 starts the epilogue. Those first four parts all end with a list of names. It's a, a, an interpretation tool that we can use to help us understand the scripture. It's very clear. The first part ends at the beginning of chapter 3 with a list of the sons that were born to David in the place of Hebron. The second section in chapter 5 is another list of David's sons that were born to David in Jerusalem. We saw that then there's a third section at the end of chapter 8 that ends with a list of administrators in the kingdom of David. And finally, last or two weeks ago, our last section ended in chapter 20 with another list of administrators in the kingdom of David. So if you're paying attention to that structure, one of the things you'll see is at the beginning of that last section, the beginning of section 4, which is the biggest section, there's that beautiful story of the lame Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan who was brought out of exile as an orphan to sit at the very table of David the king, where he is even treated like one of David's sons. The very next chapter, David is given victory over all of his enemies, and that's where it starts to unravel. And so we move from the feast at the beginning of section 4 to a famine at the beginning of the epilogue. That's where we find ourselves this morning. Verse 1 of our text says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. We also read that this famine, according to the Lord was because there was blood guilt by the house of who? Saul. In fact, that's the first thing I want us to see here, and that is Saul's failure has brought famine. Saul's failure has brought the famine. Or, to say it plainly, the famine is because of Saul's transgression against this people named the Gibeonites. This is both fascinating and incredibly important for us to understand, okay? It's fascinating because, first of all, Israel is suffering because of Saul's iniquity. Israel's suffering, finally, not from something that they themselves have done, but from the iniquity of Saul. That's what the verse says in verse 1. Again, read it with me. It says, It is because of Saul and his bloodthirsty house... Because he killed the Gibeonites that this famine takes place. Now, if you're like me and you think, who are the Gibeonites? We've seen them before, but let me reintroduce you to this people. In Joshua chapter 9, they tricked the Israelites, pretending that they were a nation from far away. They came wearing old clothes, eating old moldy bread on purpose. They had old wineskins. They come to Israel, who's just conquering everybody at that time. And they come to inquire of the Lord. They say, we have heard the fame of the Lord. And so Joshua and the leaders... Don't inquire of the Lord. And they make a covenant with those people, swearing by the Lord to do them no harm. This is what that is referencing. This is who those people are. Although the people had sworn to spare them, at some point Saul sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. Now the interesting thing is we actually don't even have that in the text at all. We have no account of Saul's actions here other than this verse which does count. But apparently some point during Saul's reign, he attempted to strike down these people, the Gibeonites, whom Israel had made a covenant, a promise to swear and protect in the name of the Lord. 
the consequences of Saul's actions back then, whenever that was, is here explained as a three-year famine. Year after year, there was a famine in the land. So that's kind of the fascinating part for me. Here's the important piece of this. Israel's suffering, yes, because of Saul's iniquity, but it reminds us something. And that is something we don't like to hear as Americans. There are corporate consequences to sin. Hear me when I say that. There are such things as corporate consequences to sin, for sin. That is, as the Lord declares in his self-revelation to Moses at Mount Sinai, God, according to Exodus 34, 7, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. That is, the iniquity of the father is visited upon the children, not just to the first generation or second, but as it says, to the third or fourth. And this truth, it's even codified in the Ten Commandments. If you don't know, the book of Deuteronomy, actually a big chunk of it is an explanation of um, um, expositing the Ten Commandments. And there in Deuteronomy 5, 9, referring to the second commandment, these uh, idols created by human hands, says this, You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. See, what we have here is a lesson in human solidarity. The children bear responsibility for the iniquity of their fathers because they are not only many, but also one. See, in our culture, in our context, the many we get. We get how each individual is responsible for their own sin. We have swam our entire lives as Americans in the stream of individualism. That is in our blood. It's core to who we are. But we really struggle in our cultural, historical context to understand the one. We are not just many... See, we've been polluted with an unbiblical view of of human autonomy. The fact that we think we're in charge of our lives to such a degree that it leaves no room for the idea that I might justly, rightly be punished for the sins of someone else. Yet, the text tells us there was a famine in the days of David for three years because of Saul. Who, by the way, is long dead. (laughs) He's been dead. Guess who's not enduring the famine? Saul. Who's enduring the famine? Those whom Saul represented as king. So, though it's difficult for us to understand, this is exactly what the Bible teaches. Not just here, either. Think about the children of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. All swallowed up in Numbers chapter 16. Achan's entire household is stoned to death because he stole from the banned items the things that are devoted to the Lord. The Amalekites in 1 Samuel 15, men, women, and children were put to death by Saul and Israel because of what they had done in the days of Moses. In our passage, all of Israel is suffering and people are dying because Saul broke out against the Gibeonites. As we read in our Bibles... 
Listen, we tend to have these kind of blind spots that hinder us at times from rightly interpreting the scriptures. And we either do one of two things. We either just completely ignore them or we come to wrong conclusions about what they must mean. We do not, for instance, live in a Gregorian society or culture. So we read about this famine and we think, oh man, that must have been an inconvenience for them. Why? Because even in 2022, my biggest concern this week is that Aldi might not have my favorite type of chips. Listen, I I don't have a hook for famine. I don't. Even now, there's so much availability to food that it's impossible for my mind to grasp not having access to food. Famine, for the original hearers of the word, it was a terrifying, devastating word. These are people who actually lived harvest to harvest. A single harvest could mean the death of family members. It could mean several failed harvests. That would spell disaster for an entire society. See, famine is a, is a serious word. And here under the reign of David, the Lord's anointed. We've had famine for three years, year after year. That's, that's life-threatening. So so this principle, again, of of human or corporate solidarity, it's another blind spot. It's really foreign to us, particularly as Americans, but it is both common to the Bible and important for us to understand. There is a corporate togetherness, a solidarity that is fundamental to the entire redemptive story of the Bible. There's a solidarity that is traceable from father to family and family to nation and nation to the world. So I keep using that phrase, corporate solidarity. Let's define it. The principle here is Israel is many. Many individuals constituting a nation formed at Mount Sinai before the Lord. And also one. Israel is referred to as my son by the Lord. In Exodus chapter 4. So the principle of corporate solidarity is this. Israel is many and one. And we know that Israel is often a microcosm of human beings, right? So are we. We are many and one. The Bible clearly teaches that the iniquity of the fathers may be visited upon the children upon the third or fourth generation. The Bible clearly teaches that human beings are not just individuals, even though that in itself is true, but they also have a corporate identity. Human beings are connected. We are not autonomous. No matter how hard we can, we cannot separate our lives from others in a way that demonstrates complete and absolute sovereignty. I'm sorry if that's news to you this morning. But instead, as the Bible teaches, you and I, we are related to one another, similar to the way a body works, members of body. We're familiar with that analogy as it's applied to the church, right? But we could also use that analogy for the whole human race. It works equally well. There are members of a body and individual parts that we can name and understand, and yet the body is a whole. It is a unit. There is one. There's a corporate identity to the entire organism of the being. So let's take Korah, for example. Korah, in the book of Numbers, he rebels against the Lord. By rebelling against the Lord and his chosen man, Moses, he attempts to establish his own authority and he's judged for doing so. Korah's act of rebellion is transferred to his entire household. Why? 
Because according to the Bible, the father stands as representative in his act of rebellion in such a way that the judgment against his act includes a judgment against each individual in his household. According to the Bible, each and every individual, listen, everyone is equal in dignity and value. We know that. But the role and responsibilities of individuals are not equal. There is a difference in my role as father, in my wife's as mother, in my children as children. We would not expect the children to lead the household, would we? Why? Because their role as children is to follow the spiritual lead of the father as I follow my father Christ. Same worked as a nation, as a, as a people. Remember this, this covenant that God made with David. The king therefore stood as representative of the people. And so as the king obeyed the Lord, the people were blessed. As he disobeyed the Lord, the people were cursed. The Lord has established and appointed certain people for certain roles as representative of larger groups. They represent in such a way that their actions are actually transferred to the members of that group. Their actions stand in the place as representative. I'm I'm spending time on this because, guys, listen, it is absolutely critical for us to understand this. Israel as a whole, corporately, is not suffering because Joe in Hebron has an idol in his house. Though he might. Israel is suffering because of the sin of their representative. Just as Korah's action stands for his whole family, so Saul was established as role of father of his own household, and yet the king of all of Israel. The Lord appointed him. The Lord established him. The Lord chose him in this role. He is endowed by God. He is created with authority and and responsibility in that capacity. Saul stood before God, his sovereign king, as representative of his family and the nation of Israel. That's one of the points that's clearly made in 1 Samuel chapter 12. See, after Saul is chosen, there's this whole covenant ceremony when Saul is established as king before the Lord. And the very point of that whole ceremony is made that if your king, Israel, says the Lord, does not walk in my ways, you and your king will be swept away. You wanted a king? I've given you a king. You wanted a king like the king of the nations? I've given you a king like the king of the nations. But he represents you now. Where he goes, you will follow. So if you go into exile, if he goes into exile, you're also going to go. So after all this work of of asserting this idea of corporate solidarity, I'm going to take you directly now to a passage that seems to absolutely contradict everything that I just said. Are you ready for that? All right. Deuteronomy 24.16. It says in Deuteronomy 24.16 these words. Fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers. A person shall be put to death for his own sin. The atheist says, ha, gotcha, right? See right there, that's why you can't trust the Bible. It's all those contradictions, but it's actually not a contradiction at all. But there's an important principle to understand. See, there's there's a distinction between what's stated back in Deuteronomy chapter 5 with the Ten Commandments and idolatry and Deuteronomy 24.16. What's the distinction? Well, what we encounter in Deuteronomy 5.9 is the principle that we all stand under one head before the Lord. Okay? 
we all corporately stand under one head before the Lord. The Lord has also established and appointed different heads at different levels as representative before Him. So think priest on behalf of Israel, king on behalf of Israel again, think father on behalf of household. At that level, we stand before the Lord endowed with the prerogative to exercise authority on behalf of a benevolent, good, holy God and also, here's the kick, also responsible to execute that authority, administering righteousness and judgment before Him. All who we represent receive the consequences for the actions we take. But in Deuteronomy 24.16, we find something different. We find this. God alone has prerogative to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Did you hear that? God alone has prerogative to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. He alone has established roles and granted authority. He alone has made man a representative in the home or in the nation. But Israel's leaders have the divine sanction to execute justice in the land. So in Deuteronomy 24.16, we're reminded once again that all justice is God's justice. Israel was to administer justice that was measured... That's where the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth comes in. But they were also to administer the justice that had already been established. Meaning a crime was to be determined by adequate evidence and multiple eyewitnesses. It was to be unbiased, limited to the transgressor. So there's a both and. God alone has the prerogative to visit the iniquity of the fathers on the children. Israel was to execute that justice... With eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Does that make sense at all? From your response, I can say no. Do you want me to go over it again? From your response, I can say no. Okay, all right. We'll have questions afterwards. All right, before the Lord, again, before the Lord, all people stand before Him with a covenant head who has represented Him. This is, guys, I can't tell you how important this is going to get, and hopefully you know where I'm going with that. Every one of us, we stand before the Lord with a covenant head representing us. But then, as Israel is executing its justice, they're not the Lord. They're not permitted to visit the iniquity of the Father upon the children to the first or second or third or fourth generation. That was not for Israel to do. Israel is exercising God's justice in their theocratic nation. And accepting this principle directly impacts the way we understand salvation. Just as Saul was head of his household and head of the nation, just as he represented the whole corporate body when he broke the covenant with the Gibeonites, so also the entire human race has a covenant head. This is what this pictures. This is the purpose of this. The whole human race has a representative. Every one of us. So important. This is absolutely necessary to understand this principle that is actually illustrated right here in 2 Samuel 21. Israel as a whole is receiving upon themselves the curse for Saul's actions. How can that be so? Only if Saul, in a real and abiding way, is representing all of Israel before the Lord. Or dare we accuse God of being unjust? 
Would you like to take that route? Israel is receiving famine, a serious consequence specifically for actions that they themselves did not commit. Did that rub you the wrong way? Again, it really is because you're an American, let me tell you. I mean, to some extent, that's really true. There are plenty of other societies that do not struggle with this notion at all. They get corporate solidarity. They actually struggle to understand that the individual is significant at all. We're just the opposite. We get all the individualism. But the corporate solidarity, that goes against every man for himself. The problem is it's not biblical. 2 Samuel 21 tells us this. In these verses we read, they're really an illustration of this principle at a micro level. But why? What does it do? It prepares our hearts and minds before the coming of Christ for something that Paul clearly teaches to us after the coming of Christ in Romans 5. I want your minds active on this text. Ooh, it's so good. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 12. This is what Paul says. Therefore, just as through one man, covenant representative, sin entered the world, and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 13. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin was not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those who had not sinned according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. In what way, let me ask, is Adam a type? In the sense that he represents the whole human race. That's what Adam was. He was representative. In Adam's sin, we all sinned. Just just remember, I'm not asking you if it makes sense or if you like it. I'm asking you if it's what the Bible teaches, okay? Verse 15. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by the one man's offense many died, much more the grace of God... And the gift of grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. And the gift is not like that which came through the one who sinned. For the judgment which came from one offense resulted in condemnation. For who? Who was condemned? Every single person who Adam represented, which means the whole human race. Every person ever born from the moment of conception is condemned. Why? Hear this, this is a point, yes, a point in the middle of a scripture reading, but it's important. Everyone's condemned because they're one with Adam. Every one of you are condemned because Adam is your covenantal head when you are born. That's what the Bible teaches. Verse 18. Therefore, as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. That's a a huge verse. But the next part's even better. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. See, see, just as Saul represented the whole corporate body of Israel when he broke covenant with the Gibeonites, so also Adam is, was our head. He broke covenant with the Lord, and he stood, we stood, under the righteous curse of God. Who did? All of us. Each and every one of us. 
under his curse. That's what the Bible teaches. Whether you were born in China or Slovakia or the Philippines, it doesn't matter. Pick your place. You were born in Adam. No matter what your ethnicity is, how well off your house is, how impoverished the house is, whether your nation is a good nation or whether your nation is a really bad nation, it doesn't matter. Why? Because you are born in Adam. This is your biggest problem in life. How, oh how, am I ever going to escape the coming wrath of God? At the end of the day, it's the only question that matters. Having broken covenant against God in Adam, being born a sinner, and let's be honest, quite willing to follow the prince of the power of the air from birth, because in my flesh I'm thoroughly fallen, how in the world will someone like me ever be justified? How will God ever look upon me and say, well done, my good and faithful son? See, the reality is when we think biblically, things start to make a lot more sense. They really do. When you adopt a biblical worldview, you understand the whole world is famine. This is, this is a picture of, of the whole world. The whole world is barren. The whole world is exiled. Why? Because you and I, we were created for the very presence of our Creator. To know Him, to be known by Him in a way that would satisfy every single desire and longing we've ever had. We were created to walk in His ways, to have our very delight be in doing what our Father desires. And this small passage right here at the beginning of 2 Samuel 21, it's a, it's a microcosm of the macrocosm. The famine in 2 Samuel 21 is physical, temporal, and it's directly connected with the iniquity of Saul, not Adam. I get that. But it is a reminder that the whole world lies under a curse because of their direct connection to that first transgressor. See, the human race is one in many. Individuals who are inseparably connected to their covenant head and every single cell of the organism is infected with the disease that started in the head. Every cell contributes to that disease and the whole body stands condemned in need of a redeemer. By the way, you ready for your theological term to put this to the test? Let me see Five syllables, right? You can use it at parties and people will look at you the same way you're all looking at me right now. Federalism is the term. This is referred to federalism. What is federalism? Federalism theologically defined is one acting on behalf or in the place of another. That's what federalism is. That's a good, easy description, I think. Federalism is almost always contractual or covenantal, and that entails a legal bond between those acting, the one acting, and the one for whom he acts. One acting on behalf or in the place of another. Here's why this is important. You didn't come just to learn a big word today. You came because federalism lies at the very heart of our understanding of how we're saved. It really does. This is at the core of our salvation. This idea of federalism, it lies at the very heart of our understanding of how we are saved. The fact that we can understand that one man 
is able to act on behalf or in place of the others. Seeing that the Bible teaches that and believing that, it's at the very heart of our understanding of our salvation. If you reject federalism, you reject the idea that we have a representative who acted on our behalf. And then you cut the legs off the biblical description of the gospel. Which is the declaration that he stood in your place. It is the declaration that Jesus acted on your behalf. Listen, you can't reject the covenantal head of Adam and take up the covenantal head of Jesus. Like they understand they go hand in hand. You can't reject the first and take up the second. You reject the historicity of Adam or his covenant headship. And whether you realize it or not, you undermine the gospel. It has always been corporate identity with a representative. Now where we get this messed up in our culture is we want to tie all kinds of corporate identities together that are not biblically defined. Whether it be race... Nation, so on, so forth, socioeconomic status, that's not it. In fact, the reality is Adam and Christ are the only two representatives who will ever matter. Ever. You're either under the covenant head of your father Adam and therefore in big trouble, or under the covenant head of Jesus Christ. See, we, we see different illustrations of this as we work our way through the scriptures. But in the end, There are only two. That's why Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 and 1 Corinthians 15. There are always and everywhere only two heads. We are born in Adam and saved in Christ. Who you are connected to, it makes all the difference in the world. This chapter, our chapter, it actually points us all the way home. For those of you who are paying attention, if you made it this far, good job. Let's turn back to 2 Samuel. By the way, we're going to return here next week to actually work through this chapter more thoroughly. But for today, I just wanted you to skip right to the end and see that after David inquired of the Gibeonites, we saw he asked for seven sons of Saul. Now this is going to blow your mind and it's going to be another thing you're going to read and be like, what? But just bear with me, okay? Don't you love preaching line by line, verse by verse through the scriptures? That's what I had to tell myself a lot this week. All right. Verse 9. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell, all seven together, and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days, in the beginning of barley harvest. Verse 10. Now Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock. From the beginning of harvest until the late rains poured on them from heaven. And she did not allow the birds of the air to rest on them by day, nor the beasts of the field by night. We could keep reading and we would see that that David actually sees what she's doing. Rizpah, whose sons, by the way, are some who were killed. David sees what she's doing and he's provoked to act. He takes the bodies down and he buries them in the tomb of Kish, the tomb of their father. Then, and only then, does the Lord hear the pleas for the land. I want to draw our attention to the fact that it wasn't, listen, it wasn't putting Saul's sons to death, which brought an immediate end to the famine. But it was the intervention of another woman. Another 
mother of Israel, the mother of two of the sons who were hung because of Saul's iniquity. See, this, this whole picture is actually extremely significant. We're going to explore it in detail again next week, but let me draw our attention to something very quickly. In Deuteronomy 28, it's a very important chapter. We've got the blessings and curses for either keeping or breaking the covenant. And it's pictured in two mountains. Moses blesses a mountain to show and display what happens if Israel keeps the covenant. He curses one mountain to show and display what happens if Israel breaks the covenant. Keeping the covenant again would bring about the blessing. Breaking would bring about the curses. And in the middle of that section, in chapter 28, verse 26, we read this. Your carcasses shall be food for all the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and no one shall frighten them away. This is in the midst of the covenantal curse of breaking the covenant. It's what Moses says. What do we see Rispa doing? This is more than a woman who doesn't want the birds to pick at the bodies of her sons. She's actually acting as one who's driving away the curse. Of course, this isn't the first instance of that. We could actually follow that all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. What do we find there? You remember? The Lord making covenant with Abraham. If you aren't familiar with it, please go read Genesis 15. God tells Abraham, take some animals, cut them in half, spread the carcasses on the ground, because that was a familiar part of the covenant-making ceremonies in the ancient Near East. Then we read that Abraham drove the birds away so they would not get the pieces of the animal. What happens next? The Lord puts Abraham in a deep sleep. And who walks in between the carcasses? The Lord himself. He comes as a a pot and torch, symbols of his holiness, and he walks through these cut carcasses. Why? The Lord takes on both sides of the covenant relationship, making clear that if Abraham failed, and guess what? He would. That Yahweh himself would come and take upon himself the curse of the covenant partner. That someday he would come So that the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields would be driven away forever. And here Rizpah is, out there for months, by the way, driving away the birds of the air and the beasts of the fields. See, there's this beautiful imagery and picture for us of God's covenant promise that, that though things are really dark here in 2 Samuel 21... There is a day when the Lord would hear the plea of His own Son for the land. Bringing redemption as far as the curse is found. Bringing about complete healing and restoration. Friends, I don't know if you know this or not, but we gathered this morning longing for that very thing. But we also gathered to remind one another That nothing short of that complete restoration and healing will satisfy our hearts. See, what we long for is described in Revelation chapter 22. I would like to read that for you as we close. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. We're in the description of the new Jerusalem, by the way. Then here comes this garden imagery in verse 2. In the middle of its street and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. 
The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. From feast to famine, back to feast. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And His servants shall serve Him. They shall see His face, and His name shall be on their foreheads. They will be known as they've been never been known before. Listen, I, I, know it, I know it's hard right now with so much pain and suffering in our world. And I don't even claim to know exactly where you are this morning. You may have had a horrible day yesterday or today, and you may immediately be thinking, which one of my grandparents sinned to bring this about me? But we need, however, to constantly remind one another, however dark it may be now, church family, the morning has already dawned. Look to the horizon from whence your help comes. It's almost here. Stir one another up that we might hold fast our confession because there's a day coming when we will see His face and His name shall be on our foreheads. In verse 5, there shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun for the Lord God gives them light. And they shall reign forever and ever. Would you stand as we close today? Gracious Father, you know, Lord, how weak our faith is. How weak our hearts are. You know how our minds continue to adopt worldly perspectives and views. Father, would you remind us of the greatness of the salvation you've accomplished in your son, Jesus Christ. That though we were once members of the household of Adam, we've been transferred into the kingdom of your beloved son. And now, Lord, we know nothing but your delight and your grace and your mercy. Nothing but your love. And so it will be for all eternity. Lord, as we wait, would you stir up in us a greater desire to see your Son come and make all things new? Stir up in us love for you and one another. Would your people be encouraged this morning, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Um, we're going to close with our invitation this morning. I know we've had a heavy day, lots to do. Um, I'm probably going to need my Bible for the benediction. Uh, but church family, let me encourage you, as we've talked about, you are under one of two covenant heads. If you are under your father Adam, and you stand condemned because of his sin that you were born into, he stands as representative over you. Or you stand in Christ, who is paid fully and finally for the sins as though for those he represents. The question is clear. Who is your covenant head? If only the Lord gives us signs and evidences to know which one, right? He does. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Do you desire Christ? Do you live for Him? Is there any uh, inclination in your heart that's leaned towards desiring things of the Lord? If so, then um, take refuge in that and hope in that, that you may belong to the Lord. Stir that up in one another continually through the church as you continually repent and put your faith in Him constantly. And if not, if there's never been a desire for you to know the Lord, to serve the Lord, then you may not know Him. The time is now that you would come before Him and receive Him um, and His great work of salvation. We'll have men down front who would love to share more about that with you. Do not leave this place without doing work with the Lord today.